months, the main theme that, that Anne's been following and preaching to us has been from the book of Galatians. And I'm sure by now the main message of what he's been preaching has been filtering through. Paul is talking about the fact that he wants us free from the law. He wants the Galatians not to go back into the law. The background was that the Galatian church had been established through Paul's preaching. They had been taught the gospel of the glory and the, and the salvation of Jesus Christ that you are saved by grace through faith. That's what they'd been taught, and their church had become established, and they'd been worshiping God. And then people had come into the community who had tried to bring the Mosaic law back into the community and tried to get them to, to, have, to understand or believe that to be Christians, they had to become Jews first in terms of their practice and their culture and their tradition and the laws that they had to follow. And so there was confu a confusion amongst the Galatians to the extent that Paul comes to hear of it, and he writes a letter saying to them, don't go back. And he teaches strongly as to why they shouldn't go back to the law but should walk in the freedom of the grace of Jesus Christ. But if you read and listen carefully when we look at this, you'll see that there's, there's quite a sense of urgency. I think that's putting it mildly. There's almost a sense of anger in what Paul says. He's adamant about this and he goes on and on about it. It's very, very important to him. At one point in Galatians 3, he says, Oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And I was just thinking about why is it so important? Why amongst all the things that the Apostle Paul talks about, why amongst all the things that the Galatians needed to know, because I'm quite sure that like us, they weren't a perfect church. Why is Paul so adamant and vehement and, and intense about this particular issue? And so I thought this morning I'd just touch on a few things which I think might have motivated this intensity and this, this sense of urgency with which Paul exhorts the church and us not to go back into building a relationship with God which we base on our performance and on the law and on ticking the boxes that the law presented. And I think one of the reasons, if we look at the person of the Apostle Paul, is that he teaches aggressively because he is a theologically sound teacher. He likes to be accurate, and he's academic in the way that he approaches the law. He was a scholar. If you look in Acts chapter 22 and verse 3, Paul is talking and he's speaking of his background, and he says this, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, Brought up in the city, I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any one of you today. The early part of Paul's relationship with God, the law was all that he had. And he, and he taught it as he had been taught it with what was perceived in those days as great accuracy, um, with with a determination to get it right. And when he perceived that people were getting it wrong, Paul's response was, was urgent. You've got to put this right. He was one of the people who initiated the persecution in Jerusalem of the church. Because suddenly there were these people talking about this person, Jesus, and saying that he'd risen from the dead and that he was the Messiah and that you had salvation through him. And Paul was distraught because Paul wanted people to know what was the truth as he perceived it. And so Paul taught 
urgently and enthusiastically and academically accurately according to the teachings of those days as to why people shouldn't do that and put into action his belief in persecuting the church. But of course all of that changed on the road to Damascus. On the road to Damascus, Paul encounters the person of Christ and he meets the author of the scriptures that he's been teaching all these years. And Paul has a time of revelation and anointing and an encounter with the Holy Spirit and his mind is opened and his mind is changed and now with the same enthusiasm and the same zeal and the same level of commitment Paul wants people to know what's going on. Um, If you look at Acts chapter 9 and verse 18 you see the character and the nature of Paul. He's just come through this encounter. He's been blind, he's been in a place of fasting and praying, and a guy called Ananias comes to him and prays for him, and the scales fall off his eyes, and he can see again, and it says in uh, Acts chapter 9, it says, immediately something like scales, verse 18, fell from Saul's eyes, and he could see again. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus, and then it says this, at once, He began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. And those who heard him were astonished and asked, isn't this the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem? You've got to say this for Paul. If he believed in something, he went for it flat out. And when his eyes are opened and when he realizes the difference, he goes with the same level of determination to ensure that people understand what the truth is. And he begins to... Paul's first approach wherever he went after this, even when he began to preach around Asia, when he arrived in a city, he would first seek out the Jews. He would first go to the synagogue and he would begin to lay out the scriptures for them that showed that Jesus was the Christ. He wanted people to be theologically sound. He wanted people to be scripturally sound. And I believe one of the reasons why Paul comes with this intensity in his teaching of the Galatians is he wants them to have a sound and accurate theological base. And if we're looking at these reasons that he was speaking to the Galatian church, I believe we should apply it to ourselves. I'm a school teacher in a school which is overtly Christian, and a lot of the pupils in my school come from Christian homes. A lot of them come from families where the Bible is discussed a lot. And I teach religious studies in the secondary school. And generally, when they come in at the beginning of secondary school, I have a session with them in which I begin to talk about what they know about the Bible. And I ask them as to whether they know the Bible and they know the teaching of the Bible. And a lot of them say they believe they have a good general knowledge of the Bible. And then I begin to ask them some very basic questions. And I begin to find that they don't really because what they have is a knowledge of what other people have said about the Bible. They have a second-hand knowledge. They have a knowledge that has been acquired from properly sitting under teaching properly going to Sunday school and what they're having taught is the good intentions and the belief just like I'm doing it this morning that what I'm teaching is valid of a group of people but they don't often have much of a grounding in the reality of what the Bible actually says you find it in little things you say to them what happened to Jonah and they all say he was swallowed by a whale but the Bible doesn't say that The Bible says he was swallowed by a big fish. It's a small point, but it's a point of actually. How did Adam and Eve sin? They ate an apple. The Bible doesn't say that. It's an illustration which is used 
frequently that Eve took the apple. It says the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It doesn't mention apples. You ask them, who came to visit Jesus when he was born? And they say, three wise men. And the Bible doesn't say that. It says, Magi from the east came, and it mentions three gifts. So traditionally, we assume there were three wise men. And all through their little stories, as Annie Young, are things which they have taken on board because they have been illustrated and embellished and taught in that way. And they take it as being the Bible. And when you say to them, show me that in the Bible, they go, yeah, sure. And they page to the scriptures, and they go, it's got to be here somewhere. But it isn't. If I was to ask you, what is the root of all evil, a lot of you would say to me, money. That's what the Bible says, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. And it's little things like that that change our theology. There's a whole theological tradition that says poverty is a good thing because money is the root of all evil. And so people for centuries took vows of poverty and chastity because they believed that that was what they were supposed to do, because they believed they had a theological basis for it. But that actually isn't in the Bible. And Paul challenges them on their understanding of the law, because the law is in the Bible. And in Exodus, the people were told to follow the law. And so the teachings that were there from that day were being taught by people who really believed that they were doing the right thing by laying the law on the shoulders of Israel, but they were doing the wrong thing. And Paul says to Galatians, This is the truth. And I want to say to you, and I want to challenge you, and ask you, how much of your knowledge of the Bible is firsthand from your own studies? How much can you stand on with confidence and say, I have read this in the Bible, I have seen God's Word, and how much do all of us rely on other people telling us what the Bible means? And so I want to say to you, when anybody preaches, get your Bible out. Read your Bible. Go home after the sermon. Do it after I've spoken today. And see, is this guy talking sense? Is it what God says? Is it what God says? Is this the reality that I can stand on? Because you will not be able to overcome Satan and be God's weapons in this world standing on the truth of what Clive Case says. It will fall short. You need to stand on the truth of God's Word. So the per- first point I want to, to, to bring home to you and, and have you think about is I believe that Paul wanted them to be theologically sound. He wanted them to get it right. And when he examined the Scriptures, he realized what the law was actually meant for, and he began to teach them. But I believe it was far more deeper and personal for Paul in terms of the reason that he so vigorously taught against justification by the law. And it was because of his own personal experience. He knew how empty it was. Paul had, with all the vigor that he could put together and all the intelligence and all the training and all the commitment, had tried to live his life for God. And he had experienced, like few other people, he writes, I'm a Pharisee. I was a Pharisee, trained by Gamaliel. In my belief of the Scriptures, I was a Pharisee. They were the most stringent of people in terms of their teaching. And Paul had done that and obeyed the laws like the Pharisees did to the the jot and the tittle as they saw it. And what Paul knew was this. It doesn't work because we can't do it properly. It's not enough. It leaves you empty. It leaves you critical. It leaves you hateful. It leaves you judgmental. Would I be right in saying to you, any people in here that used to smoke and stopped? You will find few people more adamantly opposed to smoking than reformed smokers. You will find few people as opposed to the dangers of drugs than recovering addicts because they know how it messes you up. 
I smoked a lot in the army. And I'll never forget, I stopped because in the end I, my house was packing in. And about a month later, I opened my cupboard to get out my dress uniform, which you take out for parades. And the stench of what I'd smelt like, because I'd never been without a cigarette in my hand or my mouth, hit me and I thought, I inflicted this on everybody that spoke to me. But I didn't know it while I was in it. Didn't know it while I was in it. Suddenly I could breathe again. I could laugh without coughing. I remember one morning, early in the morning, about five o'clock in the morning, walking into the base and walking past this incredible aroma. I thought someone's planted an amazing garden. It's just the hedge. I could smell again. <laughs> and I will tell you, bless your heart, if you're a smoker, stop. I can say this with confidence because I'm slapping myself. It's a stupid habit. It's like rolling up money and burning it and then sucking in the toxic fumes that it produces. Don't do it. And you will find few people as opposed to things as those who have experienced what it does to you. Paul had lived his life trying to tick the boxes of the law. And where had it taken him? It had turned him into a hateful young man who stood while Stephen was being stoned and approved of it, the Bible says. Who said, yeah, do it. Possibly people believe even instigated it. It had turned him into a man who spent his time going around Jerusalem and dragging people out of their homes and throwing them into jail for their love of Jesus Christ. That's what the law had done to Paul. And when Paul speaks to the Galatians, he says to them, guys, there is a freedom that I now experience. There is a joy in my relationship with God. There is a fullness. There is a love. There is a sense of belonging. Don't trade that for this thing that's being sold to you. And I would say to you, for us, enjoy the freedom that the blood of Jesus Christ that we've just celebrated has bought for you. Don't be enticed into the, 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 the allure of it's easier just to tick the boxes. I can tick the boxes. I can know that I've got those things in line. Get into a relationship with God. Get into the fullness of that relationship with God where you can love and fall down and get up and be forgiven and go forward. A freedom that will bring you to want to share that with other people for the joy that is within you. Saul, who became Paul's motivation when he was a Pharisee, abiding by the law, of wanting to have people arrested and throw them into, the, into jail and so forth, was built from his own sense of self-righteousness and fear of something different. And what came out, the fruit of it, was to put fear and anger into other people's lives. And he doesn't want the Galatians to become like that. He wants them to impact on people's lives for the love and the joy and the freedom that was in Christ. We have something amazing to give to people. We have something amazing to give to people. Let us not wrap it up in barbed wire, which is what happens if the Galatians are treated back. And Paul is... He's vigorous in his opposition of this. He has been trapped. He has been wrapped, and now he's free. And he says, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that starting off in the Spirit, you are moving into the law? This joy, this freedom, this power, this anointing, this empowering that comes, you've got that. You've started with that. You didn't have to be like me that went through the law and then got this. You've started in the Spirit. And now you want to go back to that? 
And quite frankly, it freaks him out. He writes about it in several places and he goes on and on and on and on about it. Just like a reformed and recovering drug addict will go on and on and on and on about not experimenting and trying out that stuff. But I would say that as we take that into our lives, Paul also, I believe, if I look at his life, was a very clever man when it came to understanding human nature and a very wise man. And Paul realized something else about the law. He realized that people living by rules rather than the relationship give only what the rules demand and no more. And as a consequence, they give very little. The law established exactly what you had to do to be good enough. It said, these festivals, these sacrifices, these prayers, this obedience to these laws. If you did that, you stepped over the threshold from being bad into the threshold of being good. And that's all you had to do, was take that little step and meet the minimum requirement. You know... If we lived our lives like that across the board, what a sad world we live in where people just go for the minimum requirement. I want to be a good enough driver just to pass my driving test. Thereafter, I can create havoc on the road. I can drive everybody who drives behind me, in front of me, or next to me mad. But I have a piece of paper that says I may drive a motor car. I've passed. I don't want to be treated by a doctor whose desire when he studied medicine was just to have enough information and knowledge to get some letters behind his name so that he could practice. I would be terrified of attending the surgery of a doctor whose life motivation was that. I want to be treated by someone who wants to heal people. I want to be treated by somebody whose heart's desire is to do what he can to heal the sick. That must be his motivation, not having the minimum requirement. I'm terrified of dentists. I'm sorry, people are scared of different things. I'm terrified of it. It's almost a phobia. It's not the drill, because they usually only stick the drill in there when they've given you an anesthetic. It's that little picky thing that they have in the beginning. <laughs> you know when you first arrive, and they say, hi, how are you? And then they make you open your mouth, and they keep on talking, and, and you can't answer them. And they haul out this infernal little pick thing. And there's no anesthetic yet or anything. Just begin to delve into your mouth with this sharp thing. And they begin with some force to pull against your teeth. I'm petrified. I don't know how I got onto this. I, I'm terrified of it. I, I sometimes can't stand up after a session with the dentist because my buttocks are clenching the seat and I'm stuck there. I don't want to go to a dentist who has the most basic requirements for qualification that they possibly can have. I'm scared enough when I start out. I want to know that this is a person who's dedicated to spend their life staring down people's mouths. God bless them. That's the kind of person I want putting that little sharp thing in my mouth. Nobody else. And the Apostle Paul knew that people who walk by the tick box of the law are not generous in spirit in giving out what they've got. Each of us have gifts and abilities and talents. Each of us has a a life mindset. I'll show you what the Pharisees were like. Have a look at Luke 11, 42. Oh, dear. Me and technology. 
He's talking to the Pharisees. These are the people who tick the box of the law. He says to them, Woe to you Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, your rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. He says you should have practiced the latter without leaving the former. He says, you guys are so accurate with the law that you measure how much mint there is in your garden and you offer that as an offering. And you measure how much rue there is and you cut off a tenth of the herbs in your little herb garden and you give that away. But of your love and of your grace and of your generosity and of your forgiveness, you give diddly. That's what the law does. People give the minimum. People's aspirations are the minimum. People's desire to live according to what God has got planned for us is the minimum. When Jesus is teaching about the law, he says, you've heard that you've been told, don't commit adultery. He says, I'm saying to you, if you walk in lust, if you plan to, if your mind is filled with a lust after that person, it's just as bad. The law's the minimum. Forgive me for being blunt, but the law says keep your zip up. Keep the flesh from doing wrong. God says keep your mind. The thing that drives you, your motivation, keep that pure. Keep that honest. Give me your mind, not just what your body does because of your mind. Clean your mind. Commit your mind. Give your mind. Have your pure. Don't murder. He says if you anger and you hate your brother, it's the same thing. The law says don't belt him over the head with a baton. Jesus says, don't hate him in your heart. And that comes from a relationship with God and asking God to place his love and his grace and his purity in our lives. And Paul goes to the Galatians and he doesn't want them turning into these nitpicking, stingy, ineffective people that the law makes people. I just do enough and I'm good. The rest belongs to me. The rest belongs. I'll give God the minimum of what he requires. The rest belongs to me. Remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts? They see people giving generously and they see the response from the congregation and they go, oh, we'd like a bit of that. So they sell a field. They don't have to sell it. They don't have to sell it. They get some money. They don't have to give that. They hold some back. They can do that, but they go and say, this is all we have. Because they want an accolade from the people, but actually they're saying, we'll give the minimum we can give of this, the rest is ours. And Paul knows that that's what the law generates in our lives. I will give only what I'm required. And he wants us to give our whole lives. The Bible says this to us. When a teacher of the law said to Jesus, what must I do? He says, what does the law say? And you know what? The law actually has its own answer. It says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind and all your strength, not with a tenth, not with a quota, not with all I have to have to say. I have loved the Lord with my heart, soul, mind, and strength to an extent I can tick that box. I have done those overt, visible things that people do outside to meet the Lord. He says, Give it all. Give it all. It's a relationship. Pour it out. And He knows. He knows what it does to live under the law. We should give and commit beyond the minimum requirement of the law. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. But I believe that there's another reason. I'm sure there might have been more. But Paul, in his knowledge of human nature, 
He knew that people, and because he'd been someone who lived by the law, he knew the fact that people who live by just a set of rules and just a set of laws are motivated by a fear of failure. They don't want to break those laws. And that's their motivation. And so they spend their lives trying not to do things. Can I say this to you? You're not going to go to heaven on the basis of what you've not done. And you're not going to achieve God's purpose in this world for your life on the basis of what you have not done. But the law focuses on what you must not do and how you must not fail the expectations. It's a very subtle thing that comes into our lives. I've mentioned I'm a teacher. There's a great frustration building within me. What's happening in the teaching profession is more and more there is this culture coming down, talks can, can share with me, of controlling everything with a series of rules and regulations which if you break or don't comply with or don't meet up to, you are named and shamed. And the days of having teachers who brought their unique giftings and skills and sometimes their eccentricities into the classroom and inspired young people to want to learn is being encroached upon by teachers who are living in fear of breaking or not meeting some new standard that's been brought in by Ofsted. And so they spend their lives trying not to do what they shouldn't do and trying to make sure that they do the minimum of what they should do. And it's being regulated down to the point where it's very, very sad. And bright young minds are leaving the profession because they're saying, I came to teach and you just want me to tick boxes. That's because fear of failure doesn't motivate excellence. I wish somebody could tell the people who could change the world that. Fear of failure does not motivate excellence. Some years ago, many years ago, when I was a young man, back in the 80s in South Africa, Sandra and I had the privilege of hosting a, a, an evangelist who was preaching in our town. A gentleman called Elijah Maswangani from the Shangan tribe. He's a tremendous teacher and preacher. And he came to preach in our church, and it was apartheid South Africa, and we wanted to honor him by putting him in a great hotel, but the great hotels didn't want him. So I had the honor of having him in my home. And I don't, in all honesty, remember most of his sermons that he preached, because I was going to lots of conferences in those days. But I remember a conversation I had in my home one evening at the end of the evening when he'd been preaching and we were just sitting having a coffee at home. And he began to talk to me and I was a very young man and I'd just taken over a position of running a very small school, was my first step into management. And in the middle of our conversation, he turned around and he said to me, do you let your people make mistakes? And I said, yeah, well, I guess I have to because I make mistakes. He says, if you don't let people make mistakes, all you will ever get is safe mediocrity. And I've tried to, to mold my, my management style on that for the rest of my life. Think about that. If you're in a graceless environment where you scratch out and name and shame anybody who makes a mistake, what you will have is people who will give you safe mediocrity. They will risk nothing. Same applies to the law. If you have people who believe that their relationship with God Indeed, their salvation is linked to the quality of their performance and that there is a cut-off point at which they become unacceptable. They will spend their focus on avoiding that. And they will not risk anything. They will not risk excellence. If I could say to you about your children, 
if you never give them any space to make a mistake, if you never give them any responsibility that they can maybe crash and burn with, if you never let them out of the cotton wool, all you will get is safe mediocrity. There's a risk involved. The Bible talks about faith. The Bible says, to go to heaven one day, I have to believe without proof in the existence of an invisible God. And I have to believe that in believing in His Son, Jesus Christ, who died for my sins, all of my sins can be wiped out and that God in His grace, because He has done that through Jesus Christ, will give me eternal life. I am saved by grace through faith. And faith means believing in something that you haven't seen and something that you can't prove, and that involves a risk. And Paul wants the church to walk by faith. He doesn't want the Galatian church to be... Can I point this out to you? Maybe when you read this, you never realize this. These guys are already going to heaven. They've given their lives to Christ. They're saved. Paul's not writing to save their salvation. Paul's not writing them to keep them from the jaws of hell. They've accepted Jesus Christ. Why is Paul writing so vehemently to them about this? Because he needs them to be effective in bringing people into the kingdom of God. He needs them to step out. He needs their Christian walk to be one of excellence, one of challenge, one of stepping forward, one of saying, I will go. Paul's whole life was, yes, Lord, I will go. When he's heading for Jerusalem at the end of his ministry, recognized prophets like Agabus come to him and say, if you go to Jerusalem, you will be tied up. You will be arrested. The Gentiles will take, and Paul says, well, I'm going. God said, I should go. I'm going. Read his life story. It's a series of shipwrecks and jail cells and beatings and rejections. It's like a soap opera. Paul risked that. Paul walked in all of those things. Why? Because the joy of the Lord and of his salvation and the reality of his relationship with God brought him to a place where he said, I want all of what God has got planned for me. In Jeremiah, I know my plans for you. Plans to prosper you. Guys, they don't come to pass just because God has planned them. They come to pass because we walk into them. And that takes the risk. And if you're sitting in your little room with your tick box saying, I haven't committed adultery today, and I haven't done that today, you're never going to get out of that, and you're never going to be out there changing the world. And that, for Paul, I believe, freaks him out. Let me show you. You think maybe I'm, I'm egging this one on. Paul is not that concerned. He wants people to have that freedom. But you know, at one point he's teaching and he says to people, he says to young men, I prefer you didn't get married. You know Paul said that? He said, I prefer that you didn't get married, like I didn't get married. Why? Because you need to go and preach the gospel. But because if you aren't married, you'll be distracted by lust, get married and get yourself a good wife. That's not really somebody who says this Christianity is just for you to walk in the flowers and say, hello trees, hello birds, hello flowers, and have a good time. That's somebody who's task-orientated and says we need to change the world. So he's not just, not just writing to the Galatians to say, have a good time and be free. He's writing to the Galatians to say, be free to take the risk that is going to involve to change the world and enjoy it while you're doing it. Enjoy it while you're doing it. Paul, in his own life, was not concerned about his well-being. He didn't say, I'm free, I will sit at home. He said, I'm free, I enjoy this freedom, I love this freedom. Now I'm going to go where people hate me and beat me up. 
I'm free to do that. I'm going to take that risk. I'm going to go out and I'm going to go and do that. And that's the challenge that we have. The law. It doesn't do it. It doesn't cut it. And Paul has walked the walk and he's done the deeds. And he's standing and he looks and he hears the Galatian church is going back into the law and his heart bleeds. Why would you want to give up the freedom? Why would you want to give up the relationship? Why would you want to retreat? And the father heart that's in Paul says, and why would you want to stop yourself from taking the risk to become everything that you can be and do everything that God wants? I want to encourage you. You have freedom in Christ. You should not be motivated by guilt or by fear. You should not be motivated by obligation. You are free. If you have accepted the wonderful gift that Jesus Christ has brought for you on the cross, you are free. You have eternal life. Why? Just because God loves you and he wants to do it. But from that place of being a child of the Most High God, why don't you use that freedom to rock the world? Why don't you use that freedom to step out and say, I serve a loving God. If I step out to serve him and I fall flat on my face, he will pick me up and he'll dust me off and he'll hug me and he'll say, here, go, go again. He won't say, no, 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 you didn't do it right. You, you didn't do it right. And my law says you didn't do it right. You go on the rejection heap over there. Have you noticed, it's a sad thing to say, but have you noticed how many men of God who have very big and high-profile ministries, how many of them actually fall down sometimes and make mistakes? Because they're not perfect. Because they're flawed. But you know what? They've had the guts to step out and take the risk to do something. There's a lot of us proper people who don't want to make any mistakes have sat and not done. And then when they fall down, we go, oh, yeah. Always thought he was a bit dodgy. <laughs> didn't like this about him, didn't like that about him. Always thought he was a bit dodgy. But what about what he's done in the kingdom of God in that time while he was risking it and walking out there? I want to say this to you. We're in a battle. There is a battle going on. There is a king and there is an enemy. And you are part of that battle whether you like it or not. You can't crawl into a foxhole or a bomb shelter or a trench and hope the devil will pass you by because you aren't doing anything to bug him. He'll have a go at you anyway. It's his nature. He kicks people when they're down and when they're up. If you're in the battle... Don't you want to fight it as a warrior? Don't you want to put on the armor of God? Take out that sword. Pick up your shield and risk something. Not just sit there and say, if I just tick all the boxes, I'm safe. If I just tick all the boxes, I'm safe. God will love me, the devil will leave me, and life will be safe mediocrity. I want to challenge you to excellence, to risk, to exuberance, to freedom. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we thank you for the fact that you lived a life that was full of risk. I want to thank you that you've given us your word. You've given us a, a teacher like Paul who teaches from experience and from integrity. And Lord, I pray that we will 
be bound by the, the chains of love, that we'll be constrained by joy, that we will be sent out by grace, not by the law, that we will take on more, that we will go the extra mile, that we will turn the other cheek, that we will set ourselves expectations that exceed the minimum levels that the law gives out, and that we will walk in the freedom to excel, Lord. And I pray that as we sit here, a small group of people on a Sunday morning in St. Albans, that the potential that's here for your kingdom will be released from mediocrity and that we will produce excellence in your kingdom, Lord. And thank you that we have the reassurance of your love and your grace that when we don't succeed, as we come back to you, you pick us up, you dust us off, and you, you prepare to trust us again and work with us again. Thank you for your love that never fails. Amen.